Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm C. Hetzel, and today I'm pleased to be here in the studio with Elizabeth Berg. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. <laughs> we're, we're taping the show. It's April 21st, 2015. And Elizabeth, you're coming through town on a book tour for your latest the dream lover. <laughs> um, thanks for making time to come to WCBN down it's to the studio. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> are you are you doing a lot of radio on this? Uh, a f- uh, a fair amount. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I love this because I can see you. Um, most of the radio oh. I do is on the phone and. And then I sort of feel suspended in outer space. So this is great. <laughs> Truly the disembodied voices, yeah. right? The magic of radio. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is good to see you. And it's um, and welcome to our, Thank our you. humble studio. I love this studio. This just <laughs> I'm so comfortable here. This just, does everybody say this? It just reminds them of the 60s. And, <laughs> you know, really, it's so comfortable and funky. I love it. We have yeah. had some renovations, believe it or not. Um, but yes, I think that's... That's part of the uh, part of why we and also the love this. Piano. I mean, this is great. We and, should go over and, and play a piano. tambourine. Except we, I don't play. Do you play? I don't know. Nobody plays. <laughs> so we could do some chopsticks variations, <laughs> yeah. maybe. Um, nothing like Chopin. Nothing like. Um, but I hear you were in a band. Uh, I was. So tell us a little bit about I that before we infant, get to the dream lover. An infant, I tell you, I was. Uh, I think I was 19 years old. And I was a student at the University of Minnesota, and I played guitar and sang folk songs. And there was an ad in the student newspaper, Girl Singer Wanted. Girl Singer. So I went down <laughs> to the bar. The bar was called the Red Baron, and the band was called the Blue Fox. And I auditioned, and much to my surprise, got the job. So it was I was in a rock band, wearing big bell bottoms and real short skirts and... You know, it was great. It sounds like it was tons of fun. Um, I noticed on your song list, the choices for today, Elizabeth, you didn't, you didn't choose any from the, the, the blue fox. Uh, (laughs) No, but I, I picked it. Did I leave the Janis Joplin song in there? I kept changing my mind because, you know, it's so hard to pick six songs, five songs, when there are so many songs that you love so much, so many songs that you say, shh, shh, listen, listen, yeah. every time they come on. Um, so, you know, when you ask someone to do that, then that night they lie in bed saying, oh, I should have <laughs> said so. I have no idea what I said. But I did sing Peace of My Heart in the band. You yes. did. Yes. Good old Janis Joplin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if you want to do that acapella, we could do that. We could do yes. that as one let, of our... Let me begin. In fact, I'm only going to do that for this interview. <laughs> You sing the Blue Fox song list. <laughs> living writers, Buffalo living Springfield, or Nero. Yeah, yeah. Oh. A slight departure today. Uh, well, we'll get, for the rest of the show, we'll be able to hear your other choices, the yeah. musical selection. So that'll be kind of a, and we'll also, we'll know that had it been another day, Elizabeth, you would have had another five songs that would have been on your, I'm coming on your, you, you're more than welcome to. Yes. And we'll expect different songs. Yes. It'll be part Favorite of recipes. <laughs> that's true. That, no, that's another show, Elizabeth. No. Um, before we go any further, I'll just, I'll, I'll read your bio um, from the back of your latest book out with Random House, um, The Dream Lover. Uh, 
Elizabeth Berg is the author of many best-selling novels, including Tapestry of Fortunes, The Last Time I Saw You, Home Safe, The Year of Pleasures, and Dream When You're Feeling Blue, as well as two collections of short stories and two works of nonfiction. Open House was an Oprah's Book Club selection. Durable Goods and Joy School were selected as ALA Best Books of the Year. Talk Before Sleep was shortlisted for an Abbey Award, and The Pull of the Moon was adapted into a play. Berg has been honored by both the Boston Public Library and the Chicago Public Library. She is a popular speaker at venues around the country, and her work has been translated into 27 languages. She is the founder of Writing Matters, a reading series designed to serve author, audience, and community. She divides her time between Chicago and San Francisco. So now we're, we're shouting out to you, San Francisco Public Library. You've got to, got to, there's got to be an honor in the works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you mind? (laughs) Come on, San Francisco. (laughs) Wake up. What a great, what what a great place to place to have a foot in both of those cities. Yeah, yeah, that was, well, when the the, um, manuscript was turned in, um, that was my intention to do it every year, to spend winters in San Francisco. And then this last winter, I was in Chicago because I was working on um, finishing the book. But that's the plan, is that I escape in the winter to go to San Francisco. I have a little house that I rent there behind my best friend's big house. So it's girlfriend playtime all the time. It sounds perfect. <laughs> yeah. It sounds absolutely yeah. lovely. And and so this you you are uh, you are producing so many books, Elizabeth, too. It seems like even the sh- the list that I I just read in your bio. How long was The Dream Lover in in the works. Like, uh, How long did it take yeah, to write? It took yeah. two years to write, but considering the fact that it usually takes me about half an hour to write a novel, that was a long time for me. I'm a really fast writer. So um, to, to spend, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it was not by design, but just that the way it happened is that a book came out every year. And I think there were two years where there were two books, but not because I planned it that way, just because I love writing and it comes very easily and fast to me. Not this one. Not this one did not come so easily and quickly. And is it be, was it because of the research component? Did that transform it, was because, it the histo- yeah. historical novel? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Fiction. Yeah, that was part of it because it, as you know, I, I can imagine it takes a long time to do the research that you need to do to have a sort of firm hold of the material. That said, I wrote the prologue to this book knowing almost nothing, just totally instinctual. I just felt like, I think this is what she was like. It, it was... You know, it was kind of magical. That word is so overused. It's like awesome. It's lost its original meaning altogether. But it was, it did feel magical to me. And after I did all the research, it remained intact, just the way I wrote it. I, I knew the first line and I knew the last line of the book. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of research. Also, it became at one point a structural nightmare in that I wrote it chronologically, and my editor kind of wanted to move some of the Paris scenes up toward the front. For those not familiar with George Sand, she was a 19th century French novelist who lived 
part of the time in Paris and part of the time at her country estate in Nantes. Nantes. Um, oui, oui. <laughs> and um, so... And structurally, they had wanted you to move something. Right, right. They wanted to move... Um, they wanted to move scenes from later in her life. She left her husband. You couldn't get divorced in France at the time when she left her husband, but she did leave him and she went to Paris from Nantes. And even though the money in their relationship, the house was hers, the money was mostly hers, he controlled it. That was the law. So she was going to have to make her own money. Because she had a wee allowance. And she, she, she had a wee allowance, yeah. And she needed a lot more to live in Paris. So she was going to have to make her living there. And, and she had uh, been there, hadn't she, as a nun? Uh, well, not as a nun, yeah. but in a okay. She wanted <laughs> Where to did know. That come from? It came because you were thinking that she wanted to be a nun, which she certainly did. She was uh, sent to that convent because she was a rebel, and she emerged wanting to become a nun. Absolutely serious about wanting to become a nun. When her grandmother caught wind of that, she yanked her out in a hurry, and uh, endeavored to get her married off. But we, what we were talking about was structure, and so right. some of those later <laughs> scenes, yeah, um, some of those later scenes, um, my editor wanted up front. So how to do that? How to do that so that it made sense and so that it felt um, more organic in a way. So I ended up taking the book apart, literally just pulling all the pages apart and putting it on my dining room table and looking at it piece by piece. And then I integrated it um, past, present, past, present, past, present in a way that I hoped would work to explain how she became the person that she did. I'm very interested in people's childhoods. I feel like if you tell me your childhood, I understand the person you are now as an adult. So uh, the emphasis in the first draft was very much on her childhood and growing up years. And I didn't include a lot of lovers, including Chopin. So my editor said, oh, I want more. I said, well, what do you want more of? And she said, well, lovers. So um, I and, said, well. And more friend, uh, foregrounded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's that was difficult. It was difficult to figure out how to do it. It was um, a mighty day when I laid the pages out on the dining room table and said, oh, okay, I think I've got an idea for how to do this. Well, when do you know to trust um, an editor with a suggestion like that? Like to, I because I kind of would want to believe that if it wasn't working that way, or if you felt like it was somehow inauthentic to your vision, you would have said no. This this or... requires some background to answer this question. <laughs> I was born in a small town. I mean, no, um, my first novel. Um, when I sold it to my editor, who's the editor of this book as well, the edits that she suggested were. Nothing. Not one word. It was amazing. Only I didn't know it was amazing at the time. I thought, well, this is easy. Writing books is easy. And um, most of my books did not require very much editing. So that when this one came along, and she did have a lot of suggestions, it felt uncomfortable, even though I do trust her. I love my editor. But I wasn't sure. I just wasn't sure. And in fact, I quit. I told her, and my agent, I'm not going to write this book. I'll write something else. I'll have it done by this afternoon. You know, um, I'm just going to go back to contemporary fiction. And, and both of them kind of 
begged me not to. And after I spoke with my editor and said, I'm not doing this, she said, you know those notes I sent you? Well, it was it was a lot of notes. It was a lot of notes. She said, give them to your cat to play with. And this is the most wonderful story of an editor talking about trust because she trusted me enough to know that everything she said I would take under advisement. I would read really very carefully. And I trusted her to know that what she was saying I might not take literally but would listen to. And somehow in the middle space there, we would accommodate each other. I would I would accommodate what she was looking for in my own way. And that's what happened. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, Elizabeth Berg is here. Her latest, The Dream Lover. We'll be right back.
welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Elizabeth Berg is here in the studio. Her latest, The Dream Lover, out with Random House. Thanks to Stephanie, who's behind the glass today. Thanks to Michelle Pernia for bringing Elizabeth here. And thanks also to Dara uh, at Random House for sending the book and getting the ball rolling here. Elizabeth, before the break, we were talking about some, well, The Dream Lover, basically, Mm -hmm. and how this was a book that you almost, in a way, walked away from um, because writing for you and your process had been I, I think so fluid effortless, and, yeah. and effortless. Yeah. And, and so, and then this book suddenly, well, it came to you. The prelude came hard. to you. But it then, was hard. Yeah. <laughs> did it, it was feel, hard. Did it feel like it was, you were sort of, um, because I did want to ask you why, why historical fiction? Why this story of George Sand? Was it, had you happened to read her autobiography or had you, or was it something where on one of your, when you were writing, this prelude started coming and you were like, whose voice is this? Or No, no. What happened is that I subscribed to a daily email called the Writer's Almanac. You may be familiar with it. It comes from Garrison Keillor and every day you get a poem and it's almost always a wonderful poem. And then you get um, differing amounts of just little factoids having to do in one way or another with literary things, including today is the birthday of author T.C. Boyle or Anne patch it or um, and one day it was George Sand's birthday what I knew about George Sand is that she was a 19th century French novelist who killed Chopin and she was very scandalous and smoked cigars she did not kill Chopin Um, those rumors are false she actually really helped keep him alive at any rate it was her birthday and there were a number of facts that were given about her life in a little synopsis that were so titillating, so interesting that made me understand that she was a woman full of contrast and contradiction. And that really appealed to me, not only as a writer, but as a person. I like complex personalities. So I thought, I want to read a novel about George Sand. Not so much a biography, but a novel because I wanted someone to feel free to take license, to put in dialogue, to create rich scenes that you can do when you're writing fiction, as opposed to biography when you have to be pretty straightforward and stick, stick to, the, to facts. the facts. Exactly. So I started to look up all the novels written about George Sand. you know how many there were? None. Not one. Did she have any cameos? Yeah, and um, there's a there's a book called Becoming George Sand that had had some of that imagining, but I wanted her whole life in novel form, so I called my friend Nancy Horan, who wrote Loving Frank, and I said, Nancy, Nancy, you have to write a book about George Sand. She's so interesting, and Nancy had just finished a book about Robert Louis Stevenson called Under the Wide and Starry Sky, and she was exhausted, and she said, I'm not writing anything. You write it. I said, I can't write a book like this, and she said, of course you can. It'll be wonderful, so I thought, well, okay, if you say so, then I'll give it a shot, so... That's what prompted me into starting to do research about her. That's wonderful. So yeah. the writer's almanac and then mm-hmm. this encouraging mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or basically you do it. Yeah. I'm not doing <laughs> it. You do it. Yeah. Right. I and, can't do it. Yes, you can. <laughs> and then and then did you start like that? Because uh, 
you talk about it being like there's different modes of research and there's presentation of historical fiction and and you say and in about your approach that it was impressionistic mm-hmm. and is so is that mm-hmm. um is it because you could uh, you felt like you could synthesize and and sort of you did enough research where you understood sort of I don't know because you said you well, liked interpreting some of even yeah. the things she said or the yeah. phrases you had a yeah. sense of knowing yeah her whole life and her whole personality as I understand it is so evocative to me and so simpatico if we were on eHarmony we'd so go on a date together <laughs> we share a lot of things in common um, but the way that I wrote it everybody writes differently and, and that includes historical fiction When Nancy told me to write the book, she said, you know, you just pickle yourself in research. You just read so much about the person and then you start writing. And contrary person that I am, I said, not me. That's not how I'm going to do it. That's not what was working for me. Because when I began reading about her, I got so excited. I had to leap up and write scenes. So that's how I did it. I would kind of go take a bath and research and then leap out of the tub and run over and write a scene that was inspired by what I read. It might be a reenactment of what I read, or it might be something altogether different that seemed as though it might be true based on what I read. So it was a lot of going back and forth. There were a lot of contradictions about George Sand, including one biographer who said some of the things she said in her 1,000-page-plus autobiography. He said there was not a word of truth in this, in something she said about her 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 grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. So that was wonderful news for me as a novelist. And it meant I could just do whatever I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it was also a little bit frustrating trying to get the story straight. It was like an unreliable diving board, you know, there are lots of holes in the diving board. So, um, I I would think, well, what is the truth about what happened in this situation? And, and in the end, just, you know, settled on my own decision about what happened in each circumstance that's presented in this book. Yes. What is the truth? That is that is a question. Yeah. It? Do you would you mind reading? A, a oh, I'd be happy to. Elizabeth, um, to hear. Mm-hmm. Sure. Just a little sampler. Um like those people who stand in the mall and say, want some popcorn? Um, (laughs) I love that because I always get snacks. Anyway, um, we were talking earlier about how although the money in George Sand's marriage and the house where they lived in the countryside called Noant was hers, it was controlled by her husband. So that when George Sand decided to leave her husband, she knew she was going to have to make her own money. So when she goes off to Paris for the first time, she has in her valise a manuscript that she has completed called M.A. And she figures that she knows someone in Paris who will help her get it published. So this is the scene where she is bringing it to that guy. This is January 1831 in Paris. The 62-year-old novelist with whom I was to speak about my novel was named Auguste Hilarion Cairatri. He was from the Berry region, and our meeting had been arranged by a mutual friend who was also from there. The meeting took place on a very cold morning. I had elected to wear a dress which was not nearly warm enough. I stood shivering on his doorstep until I was let in by his maid, 
and then escorted to, of all places, his bedchamber. It was clear that Kevratri had just arisen and hastily dressed himself. On his bed, a woman who looked to be my age reclined under a silky pink comforter. His wife, I gathered. I had heard that his wife was very young. I nodded awkwardly to her. She nodded back. And then Kevratri and I took our places opposite each other at a desk at the side of the room. After we'd exchanged a few pleasantries, Kevratri said, Well then, shall we? Nervously, I pulled my manuscript out. I had not known how many pages to bring, and so I had brought them all. My hope was that he would listen to me read several pages out loud, comment positively, and then ask to keep the rest to read himself. After a few days, perhaps he would let me know what publisher he had given my work to. And after that, I hoped, I would be called into the publisher's office to be given my advance. I began reading in a soft voice, and Caratri boomed out, Louder! I can't hear a single word! I read louder, aware of the fact that not only he but his wife was listening. I could not bear to look up at either of them. I had just started the fourth page when I heard Caratri clear his throat in a way that was not necessity, but statement. And then I did look up. His expression was pained. He put the tips of his fingers together, stared off into space for a moment, then turned to me to say, Well, this, my dear, is my advice to you. Make babies, not books. I nearly gasped. I was so overwhelmed with humiliation, I didn't know what to do. But then I recalled how this author, whom I was asking to judge my work, had written a book I had found ridiculous. It was about a priest who violates a woman he believes to be dead. I put my pages back into my bag with great care. Then I stood and said, I thank you most sincerely for your time. As for your advice, if you think it is so good, I would suggest you follow it yourself. I walked out, my head high. At the first cafe I came to, though, I sat dejected at a table near a window, my chin in my hands, and watched the people passing by. I thought about the life I had begun to build here, the friends with whom I had pooled resources so that we could rent a warm room in which to read, the modest dinners we shared in one another's apartments. I loved the theaters and museums, the literary and political events we went to. I enjoyed as well the ambiance provided by things we could not directly participate in, ballrooms with glittering chandeliers, fine restaurants whose posted menus set our mouths to watering, two opera houses. Most of all, I loved my routine of taking my coffee every day in a cafe across the street where I was able to indulge in that greatest pleasure and necessity for one who wants to write. Observation. Despite this embarrassing setback, I had never felt so alive and happy. I would not give up. There were other people I could ask to read my work, and perhaps one of them would help me. I would not go back now. I could not. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Um, that was Elizabeth Berg reading from her novel, The Dream Lover. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, Elizabeth Berg is here. Her book, The Dream Lover, just out with Random House. Right? Just Elizabeth? out. Yeah. Like... Just born. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, is, is it almost, we were talking earlier in the program that it took this one, you have a different, almost a different relationship with than your other books. Mm-hmm. Does it make it somehow more... Um, what's the right word I don't um like does it mean more to you because of that or is it because it's the latest book and the latest book always is the one well I I always say quite honestly that my favorite of my own works is my first novel called Durable Goods but this book is the one I'm most proud of I really am proud of this book and I love this book I really do and so People, I think, are suspicious of authors going around on book tours saying, I love this book because, you know, (laughs) buy this book. But I really do love this book. Um, And I've been heartened by some of the wonderful reviews that have come out that were written by people who really seem to understand what I was going after here. Uh, So, yeah. And, And I also think it is the very most beautiful book. I think Random House knocked it out of the park with the cover. And if you undress it, if you take off the jacket and look inside um, on the on the spine, there's this gold and inside it looks like French wallpaper and it's got the rough cut. Pa- I mean, yes, yes. I if this were not my book, I would buy this book to put on my coffee table because I love looking at it so much. I just... I tell my editor practically every day, this is so beautiful. And she says, I know. <laughs> so I'm I'm proud of it for that reason, too. I just I just think it looks great. So all you radio listeners, you're going to have to go out and take a look at the book. Because I wish have we could a look. Uh, beam, yeah. it, beam it to, to and, everyone, Elizabeth. Yes, and looking at it in person, as they say, is far different than looking at an image of it online. I have to say, um, I was very much struck with that. Because I the first image I saw, was online and then when they sent me the real deal I just plotted I just think it's amazingly beautiful well and it's the artifact of the book isn't it yeah. too and it really does it gives carrying it around it today it's been yeah it's like been quite glorious. It's like the olden days it's got heft it's got it does. it's 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 beautifully crafted and um yeah Okay, enough about well, back, that. <laughs> and back, well, and back and back to the writing, back to the story. Yeah. Um, and you just before the break, you you read us a section. Mm-hmm. Can I ask why did you pick this particular section? Um, is it was there an echo um, at all between? Um, do because. I wonder, George Sand, would she be a part of your imaginary family or sort of your larger community of writers? And was there something in this scene that also um, resonated with you? Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to dispel a lot of myths surrounding George Sand. People think of her as a very feisty, almost haughty, really strong woman. In some respects, she was. In other respects, not so. In other respects, she was incredibly vulnerable. She lived her whole life for love. And she said of herself, the only thing strong about me is my need to love. Another myth is that she didn't have to suffer with writing. She was the first bestseller in France. She was enormously successful 
once she got going. However, she paid her dues, and this scene really happened. She did bring the, bring her work to a novelist who escorted her to his bedchamber, where his wife lay on the bed, and he kind of dismissed her, and so that, that really happened. And she stuck it out. She just kept on going and was um, very surprised at the literal overnight success of her first novel. Surprised and made uncomfortable in many respects, because in those days when you hit it big in the in the book business, people would come to your door and ask for money. And she had a soft heart. She, she would give money and things away all the time. And uh, so it took her a while to learn that not everyone who came to her door asking for money was telling the truth. <laughs> oh, and I can only imagine this happening then in Paris. Like that would be probably a, a, a long line around the block. Absolutely, yeah. And and then things like, you know, she had to do interviews. She was not comfortable doing interviews, as many writers are not. Many writers sort of feel like everything I have to say is in the book, so I can't, you know, it's hard to talk about. Um, one woman asked her, what do you think about when you're writing a novel? And she answered, I think about the novel. And so the woman said, yeah. And so the woman said, ah, so you don't think when you're writing. <laughs> That's confounding somehow. I know. It's like one of those weird metal yeah. puzzles. Yeah. And, may, and maybe there's some element of truth to it. Maybe you just, you're just, uh, just going with well, she's whatever the, about yeah, the she, yeah, exactly. you know, hello. I don't know yeah. why I'm trying to defend this strange interviewer from the way past. Um, anyway, you know, as I, an interviewer yourself, probably. Oh, yeah. I prefer to see these as conversations. Yes. Anyway, Elizabeth, yes. Oh, okay. So it well, it is too, yeah. too much like, uh, no, yeah, it's anyway, very comfortable. The, the strange, strange, and this strange. martini's so good. <laughs> that would just be a really great. She's only kidding everyone out there. <laughs> I have some really fine water here before me is the yeah. truth yeah well, it could be water yeah. okay so, um well it, it seemed like um george sand was you know what you you capture also she's was no stranger to uh the controversy and and still managing to to persevere uh yeah. as well and and i was sort of a, a bit surprised because um i think correct me if i'm wrong because this uh the Baudelaire did he was it seems like in her time she had her detractors yeah he and, called and, her a lactating cow this is um, terrible yeah I know I know um, yes and then um, she had, she her had defenders many admirers well. many yes. admirers um Gustave Flaubert and Balzac and Victor Hugo and Walt Whitman and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and um Dostoevsky for God's sake and Turgenev um but in the end, I think what she believed and what I believe, too, is that you do what your heart tells you to do, and then you let the chips fall where they may. And she did not take herself seriously as a writer, which is kind of astonishing to me, but she didn't. Um, she loved writing. It was mostly effortless for her. She very rarely had what is known as writer's block. She wrote effortlessly, and she and Flaubert were such a study in contrasts that way because, as as you may know, Flaubert is credited with saying, I spent the morning putting in a comma and the afternoon taking it out. And so they were always at cross purposes. You know, she'd say, loosen up, and he would just fret and walk around in his dressing gown and get nothing done, except then he got a lot done. 
<laughs> I love how you're describing this because I do almost feel that you were there, Elizabeth. I did feel and like so, that writing and, it. And yeah. so that's and that's what's necessary to bring that level of engagement and intensity when you're writing a piece like this, isn't it? Yes, that's that's really what I discovered. And and I think you're always there, or at least I am, no matter what I write, whether it's contemporary fiction or not. But this is a whole nother layer because you're in another time. And so you're thinking of streets that look very different from the street that you see when you look out your window. You're thinking of clothes that are highly different from what you see. And most of all, the social mores, the way people had of speaking. Oh, imagine a cogent thought expressed in a complete sentence. It's a miracle. <laughs> like, totally. It's a miracle. Like, I know, sup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and the salons where they would talk about art and literature and politics and where Franz Liszt and Friedrich Chopin would play a four-handed piano piece. I mean, compare that to keeping up with the Kardashians, right? <laughs> On that note, we're going to take a short break, but we're going to come right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Elizabeth Berg is here, the dream lover on the table. We'll be right back. Take me 
Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Elizabeth Berg is here, the dream lover. Um, Elizabeth, where are some of the places that you'll be going? Um, because people can listen as um, a <gasps> podcast as this well. Is, so. This is such a hard question. <laughs> oh, so, okay. I, I, you know, this is this is why, why people like Michelle are indispensable because authors never know where they're going. That said, I will tell you that the next two days are Kansas City and St. Louis, though I'm not particularly sure of the order. Um, I actually forgot. I think I'm going to St. Louis tomorrow. Well, don't I? Worry. I think don't I am. Worry. Yeah, I am. I am. People and then I'm going. I'm going out. Yes, because if you've you, got appearances. Thank and you fun for reminding. And, okay. Yeah, if you go to elizabeth-berg.net, the whole tour schedule is there, as well as wonderful pictures of my of my dog who's in heaven, and um, a blog, and you know, there's bunch recipes. There's a whole bunch of fun, fun stuff on there. But the whole tour schedule is there. And so that is so. And if you just Google you, it's the first thing that pops up, really. So okay. they can they can find you. No, no doubt, Elizabeth. Um, so with this, could I ask you? This is this is a completely from left field question. But um, when we were reading your your bio to start off the show, um, you had an Oprah Club selection, and I wondered what happens after that? Because were you already uh, sort of, um, you were going to write no matter what, it seems mm-hmm. like, with the list of books mm-hmm. that you have. But was that also a moment? Because that feels like also like winning a prize. That was a happy day. <laughs> yeah, that was a happy day. Well, what happens is that your book sales go through the roof. And I had been building, and I was proud of that, that I was, quote, doing it by myself. And um when she called, I was only too happy to let her help me, however. Um, I think what I was selling before Oprah was around twenty to 30,000 copies, if I recall. I'm not very good at numbers, but I think it was something like that. So when Oprah chose Open House, it went up to 500,000. That's what she did for books. And I'm so sorry she's not doing it anymore because I think she did a lot and continues to, although in a quieter way. She did a lot for books and reading, and um, I miss her doing that. And is that part of the reason, because I'm not sure of the timeline, when did you found Writing Matters? Writing Matters was founded because I had a a friend named Leah Hager-Cohen who had a quite beautiful book come out called No Book But the World. She is a writer I admire so much. I have to stop myself from genuflecting when I see her. She just wouldn't go for that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) And she's not particularly well known. And it just drives me crazy when people are so gifted and not well enough known, in my opinion. So she was not coming to Chicago on tour. Um, She wasn't touring much at all. And I said, well, you're coming to Chicago now because I'm going to do an event for you. So I had three weeks to plan and I rented the Hemingway Museum in Oak Park and I filled it with flowers and wine and good food and I charged people and I used the proceeds to go to buy books for children who would otherwise not have them. And I looked upon it as a win-win-win situation. That's how it got started. And a party. 
I know, sounds like it's a party. Such a party. <laughs> and and so my goal, and I think I'm the only one doing this, is to choose writers you've the best writer you never heard of, you know. And and thus far, people have come out of there saying, "Wow, I love this person." So it's it's my joy and pleasure to do it. It's also a lot of work, <laughs> really a lot of work. Yeah. So it seems like that would fall in certain points in your writing. Uh, life like you do it every three months every three months yeah and I and I have someone um my my partner in life helps me a lot and we have volunteers who are you know they they hang up posters and they they send out to all their friends notices on email and and they bake uh, the night of the event who's the next one the next one is Amy Krauss Rosenthal. She is a children's book writer, primarily. She's done one book for adults. She's one of those happy people that you just want to be your best friend. She's excited about everything all the time. A lot like you, in fact. And she did. The, she does um, books called, the last one was Exclamation Mark. It's a little children's book about an exclamation mark. It's absolutely <laughs> charming, charming. And um, I posted on my Facebook that she was going to be next and some people did know her and said that they love the books as much as their children do and they are very excited for her to come I'm going to have crayons for everybody it's going to be great I'm going to have kid food oh and so maybe cover the tables with that sort of that white drawing paper so people can I'm, write on it I'm, or so, or... I'm, I'm not going to give it all away okay. let it be known that there will be crayons there and and we always have an essay reader I will say this this is giving away a little bit of a fun surprise we always have a kid read an essay about why they love reading and it's charming and people love it this time because it's a kid writer we're going to have an old person read an essay so I looked for the oldest person I could find (laughs) who would be willing to read an essay and and thus far it's an 86 year old woman named Edna who sent me um her essay and she asked me to edit it which I did and uh so she's going to be the one so surprise it's not a kid it's it's Edna the other end of the spectrum what? yeah <laughs> well what a what good work you're doing also so to build the community of of readers and writers this this feels like such genuine work and giving a giving like well, you're already giving your stories. We've <laughs> so had you're giving we've quite had, a lot, Elizabeth. <laughs> you might know Mark Sloco. We've had him, Stuart O'Nan. We had Betsy Woodman, um, and each time it's been quite wonderful. What was the most shocking um, piece of research from uh, the Dream Lover that you put in the book, or maybe didn't put in the book that you found? Just to go back to the Dream Lover before we skedaddle. You know, it's. It, it's interesting that you asked that question because for our times, it wasn't so very shocking what went on with her. Um, but for the times, it was her her leaving her marriage, the strings of lovers that she had. Um, I guess what was shocking to me is the way that even then and now, when a woman discovers that her husband's been unfaithful to her, um, the pressure that she has to stand by her man, um, what it is still existing today. Um, she was, George Sand was encouraged to behave as a prostitute in order to satisfy her husband and stay in the marriage so that her children would be happy. 
um, which she refused to do. She couldn't do it. She didn't believe in sex without love. However, she fell in love quite a bit. <laughs> That's handy. <laughs> Elizabeth, thanks so much for talking with You're me today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Come back anytime. Thank you. <laughs> today on the program, Elizabeth Berg, her novel, The Dream Lover. George Sand imagined. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks to Stephanie for engineering. Thanks to all you. Until next time.
anything I ever wanted from you, daddy. Tell me, na na are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and it is time for La Explosion Banda. Quitarte la ropa Quiero decir 